Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 198. My name is Terry Frost and in this episode I'm doing Shakespeare's Henry V from 1944 starring Laurence Olivier and then something a bit silly, a movie called School for Scoundrels from 1959 starring Terry Thomas, Ian Carmichael and Alastair Sim. So we're going from the sublime to the ridiculous and back to the sublime again. So grab a drink and some munchies and I'll get the contact details out of the way. After that, the show will start. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of classic movie appreciation. It appears every two weeks and the only rule is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Probably not going to do genre films because genre films go over to the Martian Drive-In podcast, but nonetheless... That's the rule. More than 20 years old. You can contact and offer feedback several ways. The first one is the new feedback email address, feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and leave feedback there and get updates. Or you can go to paleo-cinema.blogspot.com and listen to the episodes there and put feedback through. This podcast may contain adult materials, so please don't listen to it when children are around or when you have your granny over. Hey, how's everybody going? Uh, the weather's warming up here, which is such a lovely thing for me. I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I'm also enjoying the circus that is the American election, of course, with Trump getting crazier and crazier and less likely to become president. Um, hope everybody is doing fine. Hope the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune are all nerf. And, um, yeah, so I decided I was going to do a Shakespeare this time, mostly because I was sitting around near the Blu-ray wall of of death, and I happened to see Henry V. I was also going to do Hamlet, but Hamlet's a bit of a bummer. So I decided I was going to do Henry V, the classic version, starring Laurence Olivier, and a tremendous supporting cast as well. And then I was going to do something else. I didn't know what I wanted to do for a little while, but then I decided to do School for Scoundrels, which I had never seen before. It's a kind of minor English comedy from 1959. It stars Ian Carmichael, Terry Thomas, and Alastair Sim. It was remade in 2006 with, oddly enough, Billy Bob Thornton and John Heater, and that version died in the arse. It was also remade before the ill-fated Billy Bob Thornton version as a Bollywood film in 1975 called Shoti Sibat. So there you go. It's a, one of those movies that obviously translates well between certain cultures, just as long as Billy Bob Thornton isn't in it. But I am getting ahead of myself a little bit, and I probably should tell you what I've been watching. So I'm just going to kill some time here while I bring up my Letterboxed, which is getting on for about a movie a day according to where we are in the year. I'm not sure I'll get the 365.25 movies this year. To be honest with you, I'm not really fussed by that. Uh, It's just one of those weird measuring sticks you have when you list all of the movies that you've watched in a year that you start kind of comparing it. Okay, well, am I up to track for one movie a day for that year? But it's not important. It's the quality of the movies that you watch that matters. And looking back over the last 10 months of my letterbox the the quality's been pretty fucking low to be honest with you but nonetheless there have been some good movies in there and of course every movie i talk about on paleo cinema podcast and on martian driving podcast is an undiscovered gem so the first thing i watched was a canadian film from a year or two ago and hi to all the canadian listeners stay warm up there guys uh it stars jules state who people remember from firefly and it's a comedy called how to plan an orgy in a small town which has got a little bit of nudity in it but it's more a comedy of manners uh a writer who was thrown out of a town for a scandal in her youth comes back to the town when her mother dies and because she's a, a famous writer about sex and sexuality the townspeople most of whom she grew up with and didn't like her particularly decide that what they want her to do is to help them plan an orgy and it's quite a sweet little comedy it it plays with gender roles it plays with um societal expectations of people it's nothing really special and it's just kind of sweet and cute and nice and a little bit fun so I kind of enjoyed that. It was on World Movies Channel on um, 
Foxtel, so I decided to watch that. Canada apparently is ethnic, um, according to world movies. Then I saw a um, French film from a couple of years ago, The Man Who Laughs, which has Gerard Depardieu in it. It's a remake of a movie based on an Alexandre Dumas novel, Man Who Laughed, of course, which was done originally in about 1928, starring Conrad Veidt. It's about a guy called Gwynplaine who was kidnapped as a child and mutilated, so he has a big grin, kind of an itchy-the-killer grin on his face. And this is um, in pre-revolutionary France. He joins up with Ursus, a character played by Gerard Depardieu, um, and a young girl whom he rescues from a blizzard. And they become travelling players. Ursus, uh, this is actually a good Gerard Depardieu role, recent one. He's, he, he's compassionate and loving and all that sort of thing. But ultimately this movie is a tragedy because the original Alexandre Dumas novel was a tragedy. Um, it's got to do with the French aristocracy and how people are mocked for being um, deformed. And Gwynplaine is a kind of tragic romantic hero in it and is probably one of the role models from whom Tim Burton pinched Edward Scissorhands. Uh, And it's it's worth checking out. There have been a few different remakes of this, including an Italian version which was played kind of as a spaghetti western in the 1960s. But um, The Man Who Laughs kind of worked for me. It's a little bit different. It's visually beautiful. The, the uh, some of the there's a bit of CG in it, but there are some lovely sets and some lovely costumes. Emmanuel Seigneur is in there playing a French aristocrat, and um, yeah, it turned up on either Stan or Netflix, and I found it worth watching. The other thing I did was that Rebecca McLaren and I did the ABC local radio Northern Territory gig this week. And because it was Rebecca's birthday, we decided to let her have her head. And she decided to pick our top three romantic comedies of all time and talk about them. Now, her three were um, Love Actually, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and When Harry Met Sally. Uh, So we, we talked about them a little bit. And I'd never seen Love Actually. In fact, I've never seen Love Actually which made it a little bit funny, and on air I promised that I'd watch it within the next two weeks, so I probably will. But my three, I've I've kind of went a little bit lateral with it. I did The Princess Bride, I did Roxanne with Steve Martin, and I also did There's Something About Mary. So we talked about those three. Uh, Rebecca hates There's Something About Mary for some reason, and Ben Stiller's not my favourite actor in the world, but I like the movie itself. So we kind of talked that around and had a lot of fun with it. Didn't rewatch really any of the movies. I could talk about them off the top of my head, having seen all three of them quite a bit. But now I've got to go and watch Love Actually. So that's one of the perils of doing radio, I suppose. In a couple of weeks when we do it again, we're going to be doing a Halloween movie. So I'm going to have to find a Halloween movie that's not too scary because Rebecca doesn't like scary movies. And that's perfectly valid. I'm not criticising her for that. But it makes finding a Halloween movie just that little bit more difficult. But, yeah, that's part of the fun of this gig. Uh, apart from the fact that it's a fun gig to do. And I get to wander into ABC Studios down at South Bank here in Melbourne. And pretend that I'm a media person for about a half an hour to 40 minutes a day. Once every two weeks. I really love the gig, to be honest with you. Um, anyway, so I'm going to take a break. And when we get back, I'm going to talk about the 1959-1960 comedy, School for Scoundrels. Once I was alone So sun up from the hills cold cold was the
trail Where your lips fill me with thrills A weekend in Canada A change of scene Was the most I bargained for But then I discovered you And in your eyes I found love That I couldn't ignore That was the poor man's Johnny Mathis, um, Adam Wade, with Canadian Sunset. But on to school for scoundrels. Um, it's based on a series of books by a guy called Stephen Potter, who in the 1940s was a producer for the BBC. Now, Potter was an academic, but he's also a little bit um, arch and a little bit um, sly and funny. And so he wrote a book in 1947 called... The Theory and Practice of Gamesmanship, or The Art of Winning Games Without Actually Cheating. It sold really well because it was a tongue-in-cheek piss take on social manners and social mores and the importance of playing games and things like that because that book was crazily successful. He followed it up in 1950 with Lifemanship with a summary of recent researches in gamesmanship, one-upmanship, being some account of the activities and teachings of the Lifemanship Correspondence College of One-Upness and Game Life Mastery, and Christmasship, or the art of giving and receiving, then Supermanship, or how to continue to stay on top without actually falling apart. So he um, he, he rolled this into a, a personal industry, and um, he also wrote a couple of autobiographies. The first one, which has got the best name for an autobiography I've heard in a while, in 1959 he wrote an autobiography called Steps to Immaturity. And um, yeah, you've got to love that. I really like this guy. I've only heard about him through the movie, but I really like Stephen Potter for that reason. The whole idea of um, one-upmanship and lifemanship, as he called it, is the idea that you, by being passive-aggressive and by gaming the system of social interactions, you can prevail. And now, of course, this has taken on much larger and more sinister connotations in the political realm where gamesmanship and lifemanship seems to be the status quo and kind of angling for things and passively aggressively undermining other people, what we call here in Australia white anting, um, is unfortunately really popular among those who are so insecure that they need to put other people down. The production of School for Scoundrels is kind of interesting too. Even though the script is um, credited to a couple of other people, it's mostly written by quite a famous English actor, Peter Ustinov, who was also a director, producer, writer, uh, basically a, a cultural polymath. Uh, if you go onto YouTube, you can find an audience with Peter Ustinov, which is a hilariously amusing little piece of whimsy where he's interviewed by a bunch of famous people in a 
kind of audience thing. And um, it, it works quite well, and you find out some interesting things about Peter Ustinov. But he basically wrote the script based on Stephen Potter's non-fiction books, well, semi-non-fiction books at least. The other problem is that the director was a guy called Robert Hamer, who had directed a bunch of other things, Kind Hearts and Coronets, um, amongst others. Now, he was a um, recovering alcoholic, but he fell off the wagon during the production of the film, so he got sacked for that. Uh, the producer Hal Chester and Cyril Frankel, who had done, who went on to do a whole bunch of episodic TV in the UK, like Danger Man and Department S in the 60s and 70s, ended up finishing the film. Uh, unfortunately, Robert Hayward, because of that alcoholism, never worked as a director again. But having said that, School for Scoundrels is a light and frothy piss take on that kind of an attitude. And that's the important thing to remember, that it is a satire on this stuff. It stars Ian Carmichael, who made a career of playing not-too-bright, middle-class English people. And the story is fairly simple. He plays a guy called Henry Palfrey, who runs a, a small business. And he's a failure in sport and love. He's an easy victim to comment and his employees take advantage of him. I'm kind of paraphrasing from Wikipedia here. So he enrolls at the School of Lifemanship in Yeovil in Somerset, run by Dr. Potter, played by Alastair Sim. They don't actually film it anywhere near Yeovil because I've been to Yeovil. And Yeovil's a lot more hilly than the Yeovil we see in uh, School for Scoundrels. In fact, I like Yeovil a lot. One of the first shops I saw there was a magic shop. So any town like that, you've got to enjoy. It's also uh, a town that's featured heavily in a number of Kim Newman's writings. Because Kim Newman grew up in Zomrazat. And he uh, views it with a combination of nostalgia and horror. So you've got Alastair Sim playing the head of this college for scoundrels, which is the perfect role for Alastair Sim. Fantastic comic actor. Wasn't afraid to let the ear grow, ear hair grow, because there's a scene right at the end of the movie where you see him face onto the camera, and he has an afro growing out of each ear. It's an amazing bit of ear hair. I don't know whether it's cosmetic and done as a um, makeup thing, or whether it's actually Alastair Sims' ear hair growing to enormous amounts. But um, it, it, it is something you don't, you don't see a lot of ear hair in movies. Have you noticed that? Uh, really, it's um, one of those things that people just don't have unless uh, it's there for a specific purpose. But in this, Alastair Sims' character has an enormous amount of ear hair. It does look like a couple of tiny afros growing out of the side of his head. So Porphyry goes to the school and tells the headmaster in flashback of meeting a beautiful woman called April Smith, played by Jeanette Scott, who was in Day of the Triffids. Uh, he knocks the parcels from her hands as he rushes to catch a bus and they arrange a dinner date at a club. And while he's there, and, and there are problems all the way through it, he has problems with the reservation because his head clerk at the office made the reservations and did it badly. Uh, and at the uh, nightclub where he takes, or at the restaurant where he takes the lovely April, he meets up with a casual acquaintance of his called Raymond Delancey, played by Terry Thomas, who's an utter cad and a bounder, and pretty much Terry Thomas. Uh, during the evening, the three of them get together because his reservation has been shot and Delauncey has a reservation, so the three of them have dinner together and there are problems ordering the dinner because um, Palfrey doesn't know anything about French cuisine and totally fucks up the job. And in the end, um, they agree to meet up again, the three of them, and have a tennis match, which Delauncey wins by basically undermining that's how the troubles too. He got conned into buying a car by a couple of guys in a car dealership called the Winsome Welshman. And they're played by Dennis Price and Peter Jones, who was, by the way, as a side issue for the geeks out there, the first voice of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on BBC Radio. Dennis Price and Peter Jones are fantastic in this the way they kind of bamboozle and con Porphyry into buying the car. They slip in and out of posh accents at various times. They confuse him with technical details of this enormous, ugly, and 
broken down car that they're trying to sell him. They say it's a 1924 Swiftmobile, but it was actually based on an old Bentley frame. And it's got the most hideous appurtenances on it. It's got a kind of exhaust that aims forward and is shaped like a snake's head. And apparently the car was once owned by a Maharaja because there's an Indian elephant on the front of it as a horn ornament. It's just the most hideous and ramshackled piece of work ever. And nonetheless, they sell it to him for an enormous price, about 750 quid, which is way over the odds at the time. And he takes it to the tennis game and um, just can't get the engine to turn off the thing. The indicators keep flapping in and out. It uh, enormous piles of smoke come out of it. It's just one of the worst cars in cinema history. And so Porphyry basically loses it and decides that he's going to go to the Lifemanship College and learn how to prevail against the odds in society, which ultimately he does learn. Now, this movie's also got a whole bunch of little cameos in it. Hattie Jakes turns up from the Carry On movies. Uh, the Mater D at the restaurant is John LeMessurier, who was in any number of things, including Dad's Army. And then you've got that kind of slyly humorous Alastair Sim all the way through this, teaching Ian Carmichael how to be a cad and a bounder. And he learns the lessons really well. And then as a graduation ceremony, he has to go out in the real world and apply these things. So not only does he do it in his office where... The workers are all slovenly and lazy. His chief clerk basically runs the business and overrules him and undermines him at the same time. So he prevails there. He then goes to the tennis, another tennis match with Terry Thomas's character Delauncey and prevails there. He convinces the two used car salesmen, whose names are Dunstan and Dudley Dorchester, of all things, which are not anywhere near Welsh names, and the accents that they have are basically Cockney accents. So even the name of their business is a lie. So he convinces them uh, uh, that the car is much better than it is, and I'll just play a little bit of that because it is quite funny. Thought I'd bring the old girl back to show you. We never guaranteed anything. No, you can't touch us. We're insured. What did you say you got out of her? 112. I never said anything. Dunstan let her out. He's not good at figures. I had her up to 115. What? Ah, on Western Avenue. Easy. Raced a brand new Jag all the way from North Holt to Ealing. You know, I honestly believe you chaps don't know what that car really is. She's a Swiftmobile, 1924. You really believe that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you had no idea what it was you were selling me. <laughs> Always collects a crowd, she does. She's not a Swiftmobile 1924. She's one of these Swiftmobiles 1925. A supercharged Revali model. Oh, superficially like a run-of-the-mill 24, I grant you, but... Uh-uh. One look at the valve seats. Didn't I tell you, Dunstan? I don't get it. Will you talk English? Of course I had a bit of trouble with her at first. You see, you chaps have been trying to run her on ordinary petrol. She takes a petrol-meth mixture like the old Barottids. And then the multi-hydro nuts on the brakes were all oiled up and the special two-way camshaft was bent. <laughs> no wonder the steering was all to pieces. <laughs> Still, I've had a strip right down and, well, now I, I reckon that car's practically priceless. In fact, I've already been offered almost three times what I gave for her by Brassy Digger. The racing driver? Mm. He had around the track at Silverstone. Lap to the 121.7. I said to Dunstan, didn't I, Dunstan? I said, I'd like Mr. Poffey to have that car. Because he'll know how to handle it, he'll appreciate it. Yes, that's right. That's why we let you have her cheap. We like our motor cars to go to good homes like dogs. Brass is coming round here, as a matter of fact. See if you can try and get him one. Oh, I told him it was absolutely useless. Only six of them ever made. Still, you know him when he set his heart on a thing. He's prepared to pay oh, anything. Mind you... Once you've driven a car like that, well, you have driven it. There's no getting away from it. <laughs> and what an experience it is. Well, I must be getting along. Uh, wait a minute, Mr. Palfrey. Don't be in a rush. I've been thinking about that car. It is a shade big for town work. Oh, I don't know. Yes, that's right, sir. I mean, more for a racing driver, like Mr. Digger. And so he sells it back to them for more than he paid for it in by about 100 quid, and he gets a, a sports car out of it. Now, the twist, of course, comes when he tries to use the lifemanship stuff to get April back and to seduce April. And then we have the um, the nice little bit, which is where Palfrey decides not to follow through. He's used a whole bunch of techniques to get her in his flat, to get her out of her dress by accidentally having her spill a drink on herself. 
and that's where he stops it. He decides, no, I'm not going to do this. It's not who I want to be. I like this girl too much. In fact, I'm in love with her. And then Delauncey and Potter turn up at his flat, along with Irene Handel playing his landlady. Um, and everything kind of gets into a mess. Potter sees a demonstration of the limitations of his process and Delauncey decides that he is going to go to the school for scoundrels and the cycle repeats again. Um, I, I like this film for a number of reasons. First off, I really like that idea of undermining social mores and the, the, our society is not set up for people to prevail if they're polite and nice and reasonable and basically good-natured as um, Paul Free shows in this. It also asks a question which is really kind of interesting from a modern viewpoint with the Trump scandals and things like that going on at the moment. The movie, in a subtle way, asks the question of what is it to be a man in society? And we're given a a few different versions of that. We've got the um, potter who applies science to the art of basically shafting other people. You've got Delauncey who basically because he's such a rude boorish person and really doesn't give a fuck about anyone else's feelings he up to a certain point he's prevailed because of that he's very much a selfish horny nasty little man then of course you've got palfrey who goes through that arc of being trodden upon by circumstance and fate and his own diffidence and who then becomes um, a con artist par excellence. And then, of course, you've got the Dorchester brothers, who we can see from the whole circumstance and the whole bit around them. The working class guys trying to make a living, they found the quickest way to make a living and to um, thrive in the society the class-based society that they live in. And there are some implications from a couple of the bits of accent that we get in there that there are a couple of Jewish cockneys. Is They've decided that the best way for them to prevail in a society where the odds are against them, they're Jewish, they're working class, they're not anybody who's ever going to get membership in a gentleman's club, is to uh, pull these cons and to basically rip people off and hope that they retire before consumer affairs laws catch up to them. So this movie is replete with different kinds of masculinity and different kinds of con artists, which is kind of an interesting thing. Even the chief clerk of Porphyry's office is, in his own way, a con artist who, by basically running the business and minimising Porphyry's power in his own business by undermining him subtly and psychologically. So the movie's got a lot going for it and it does say a few things about um, society and how silly society is and how fragile the constructs we create for our public personas can be if the wrong person comes along and bulldozes through those conceits so the movie's kind of interesting as well now this movie has one thing, I've had a common thread. I always try to find a common thread between the two movies I talk about on podcasts. And the common thread between these two movies is mutilation during wartime. And I'm saying that uh, advisedly because Ian Carmichael was uh, in World War II. He was part of the Normandy invasion on D-Day, uh, which again relates to Henry V in a way I'll explain when I talk about Henry V. And got the tip of one of his fingers chopped off by a tank hatch in a tank. So um, his war injury was basically he lost the top joint on one of his fingers. I don't know which finger, but he did suffer an injury during World War Two, And that relates to some of the actors who are in Henry V in 1944. But just to summarise everything, I like... School for Scoundrels. I haven't seen the remake, uh, either the Bollywood one nor the Billy Bob Thornton version. But I like this one because it's it's got some great actors in it for a start. And it's slyly subversive of society in a way that a lot of British comedies of the time were. So I'm going to take another break. And when I get back, we're going to go a little bit heavier, a little bit more serious, but still fun 
with the Laurence Olivier 1944 version of Henry V by a guy called William Shakespeare, who was also responsible for a lot of really good films, including Kiss Me, Kate and West Side Story. But first, because I'm on a roll with Italian pop songs of the 1960s for reasons that relate to listening to the Man From U.N.C.L.E. soundtrack, the new Man From U.N.C.L.E. soundtrack, which has um, Il Mio Reno, which is a song I really like, sung by a guy called Luigi Tenco. I thought I would play another one of my favourite Italian pop songs of the 1960s, this one being the original and the best version of the song by Tony Reddy. Ogni istante attenderà Fino a quando, quando, quando D'improvviso ti vedrò Sorridente accanto a me Se vuoi dirmi di sì senso per me la mia vita senza te dimmi quando tu verrai dimmi quando 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 e baciando mi dirai non ci lasceremo mai Okay, to go from that one to Henry V, or as it's known in the movie, uh, based on the original name on the original folio of Shakespeare's play, it is called The Chronicle of History of King Henry V with his battle fought at Agincourt in France, which is a long title. This is from the original uh, 1600 quarto edition of the play. So right from the start, Olivier, and it pretty much was his baby, wanted the movie to be true to the times in which the play was written. And to do that, at the start of the movie, there's a really big um, standing model set of London in 1600, where they go from um, the Tower of London all the way across to where the Globe Theatre is. Now, this um, model set, basically, it's a miniature, is 70 foot long and 50 foot wide, and it's all done with plaster and little bits and pieces of stuff during wartime when resources were quite limited. And even though it does pretty clearly look like a model, it does give us a sense of how small London was at the time, but how bustling. I mean, there, there are lots of streets. There are little boats, model boats going along the River Thames. There's all, all that kind of detail. And then they kind of track in to a recreation of the Globe Theatre where the play is being put onto stage. Now, Henry V has 
the best opening that I know of in a Shakespeare play. I haven't quite seen a ball, but I really like the way it starts. I even um, I like the Kenneth Branagh version, which is done, I think, in 1989, where Derek Jacobi does the plays chorus and does the opening bit. But in this case, chorus in this version of Henry V is done by an interesting character actor called Leslie Banks. When I talked about a movie from the early 1940s called Went the Day Well, Leslie Banks was in that as well. And I talked about Leslie Banks' facial deformity, where he had some scarring from World War One, and when he was playing a good role, his unscarred side of his face was prominent on the screen. When he played evil roles, he slightly paralysed and scarred side of his face predominated on the screen. It was just the way he did it. It's a bit like the Walter Brennan thing. Where Walter Brennan used to t- ask directors whether what kind of acting they wanted, whether they wanted teeth in or teeth out. It's a bit like that with Leslie Banks. Um, again, so you, that links back to Ian Carmichael in School for Scoundrels. He had a f- top of a finger cut off. Leslie Banks had facial scarring. And there is an actor more profoundly affected by war in Henry V, but I'll talk about him just a little bit later. But what I will do is play Leslie Banks as chorus at the start of Henry V, just to show you the magic and how accessible this movie makes Shakespearean language to a modern audience. Of all the Shakespeare adaptations I've seen, where they haven't fucked around too much with the language, this is the one where I had not a moment when I didn't understand the full meaning of what was being said. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. A kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold a swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, would famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. But pardon, gentles all, the flat, unraised spirits that hath dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France, or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? On your imaginary forces work. Suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchies whose high uprearied and abutting fronts the perilous narrow ocean parts asunder. Peace out our imperfections with your thoughts. Think when we talk of horses that you see them printing their proud hoofs in the receiving earth. For it is your thoughts that now must deck our kings. Carry them here and there jumping our times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass. For the which supply, admit me chorus to this history, who prologue like your humble patience pray, gently to hear, kindly to judge our play. I like that. It, it's, I mean, oh, for a muse of fire is a great opening line for a start. But it tells the audience that they're going to be seeing vast battles on a small stage and time is fluid in there and uh, the passage of years will be an hour on the stage and that people in the audience, whether it be in a cinema or at the Globe Theatre at the time, are to use their imagination to assist the production. And I like that. I like that kind of way of getting... An interactivity with the audience announced right up the front. It's an acknowledgement of the importance of the audience and their minds to the play that's about to happen. So that's why I like that. The story is not complex of itself. Basically, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of Heli speak with King Henry regarding the current state of affairs and they discuss um, the state of France and certain laws that were passed years, if not centuries before, which give England sovereignty over certain pieces of France, which the French king has now claimed. So it comes to pass that England is going to invade France and take over from the churlish Dauphin 
and the aging king of France to you know, basically run the place decently by their lights. Now, there are a number of people rolled up in this enterprise, among them Corporal Nim, Bardolf, and Pistol, played by Frederick Cooper, Roy Emerton, who died a couple of months after the movie was made. And Pistol, played by Robert Newton. Robert Newton, we know from a number of things. He played the mad artist in um, Odd Man Out. He also played Long John Silver and Mr. Fix in the Mike Todd version of Around the World in 80 Days. They're kind of comic characters in this, but there is a serious aspect to it as well, because before they go, one of King Hal's oldest friends, Sir John Falstaff, dies. And there's a little scene of that with Falstaff being played by a guy called George Roby, who I remember most from a really bad Oriental musical from about 1935, which I have um, a file of. I don't actually have a physical thing called Chu Chin Chow, which is a kind of an Aladdin myth. And George Roby was a, a very big actor in comic roles and but his false stuff is quite serious and tragic he gets one scene he gets a death scene basically in a bed where he calls out for um prince harry who isn't there there are some other soldiers that we see on the eve of the battle of agincourt amongst them and this is one of the things that's very important to a 1944 movie when the soldiers get together and there is Flewellen, played by Esmond Knight, who's Welsh. There's Michael Shepley playing Gower, captain of the English army. John Laurie, who people remember from Dad's Army, playing Jemmy, the Scottish captain. And Niall McGuinness playing McMorris, the Irish captain of the English army. Niall McGuinness, of course, you remember playing um, Carswell in, in Night of the Demon, Jacques Tourneur's movie. These are, guys are important for a couple of reasons, one of which is that it shows the United Kingdom being united against a foreign foe. And this movie was partly funded by the British Army as a propaganda piece. And Flewellen and the others, McMorris and all the others, show a diverse British complement of men working together to prevail. This movie was made just before the D-Day landings and it was altered slightly because there's a scene in the original play where Bardolf is executed for looting. That doesn't occur in this movie because of the propaganda nature of it. There are a couple of other changes where some um, noble traitors are executed. That doesn't happen in this one. The focus is very much on England as a concept England prevailing, and the nobility of the everyday soldier. This is all important stuff for the war effort during World War II. Now, there are two really great speeches that Olivier does in this movie. And this is probably the Olivier movie that I like him most in. I think that his um, Henry V isn't necessarily the best one ever. He makes him an understandable character and... Um, a sympathetic and compassionate one. At the scene on the um, eve of the Battle of Agincourt, where in disguise he goes around and speaks to the soldiers, we can see the best of Olivier as an actor from my point of view. I like what he does there. I like um, the use of stillness as well. There are some scenes where he, there is a voiceover of him with his thoughts, and the stillness really works well for that. The other things I like about them, it's the first Shakespeare adaptation in Technicolor. It was in the old Academy ratio, which is fair enough, because Technicolor and Cinemascope and all that kind of stuff, and VistaVision and Supercolor and Todd AO and Ultra Panavision weren't invented yet. Everything was in the Academy ratio. But the colours are beautiful, and I love the Technicolor. But the thing, the overwhelming thing on this film that really grabs me is just how understandable the Shakespearean language is. Now, before I recorded this podcast, I listened to the St. Crispin's Day speech done by other people. There are a couple of other people on YouTube who have done it, and then fine actors, both of them. The first one was a radio adaptation done by Richard Burton, and the language is less accessible. He kind of rushes through some of the lines that need time to be unrolled and to be digested and that doesn't happen in that it's very much one of those kind of terse um, 
very kind of staccato Shakespearean adaptations. I like a lot of things Burton did as an actor, but I think from based on that recording of the St. Christian's Day speech from Henry V, it, it really doesn't work. The other version, which is very, very different from either the Olivier, the Branagh, or the Burton versions, is there's a clip on YouTube of Tom Hiddleston doing the St. Christmas Day speech. And his is a much more pensive and reluctant King Harry, who understands the possibility that everybody's going to their death, and that weighs quite heavily on him. And Tom Hiddleston, I like as an actor, I mean, best Loki ever, but I also like a lot of other things he's done. And his Harry is quite divergent from the other versions and fair enough too people put their own adaptation on things and as times change and our knowledge of history evolves the brutality of war has an impact on the way people play certain roles in classic plays this being one of them the two big speeches in the movie are the once more under the breach dear friends you know filling the gap with the english dead all that kind of thing which is is quite an interesting kind of the way that Olivier does it is quite interesting but it's not as strong as the St Christmas Day speech I'm going to play that for you in a moment but I like it because the enunciation's precise and Olivier does give us that time to digest what he's saying rather than racing through it the way that Burton does in that audio clip that's on YouTube and the way he rouses the troops is quite believable and um, it, re- it really does work. The outdoor scenes in this film were filmed actually in Ireland for the most part because Ireland was a neutral country at the time. Some of them were also filmed in the south of England and at one stage the filming had to be paused because there was a dogfight between British Spitfires and some German bombers going on overhead and they waited for that to play out before they could continue filming which shows exactly what you know, the milieu was of this film being made. The other thing was that resources were quite scarce at the time, even though they had a fairly substantial budget for a British film of the era. One of the problems was that getting metal was difficult. So all of the chain mail that you see in Henry V is actually brown wool. It's knitted. And a lot of the armour that you see in the movie is actually wood-painted metallic because they just simply couldn't get enough metal to do the things the way they would have been done at times of less resource scarcity. But before I play the St. Christmas Day speech, one other thing. Esmond Knight, who plays Flewellen in the movie, the role that Ian Holm played in the Kenneth Branagh version... Interesting character, Esmond Knight, because two or three years before this, he was on a British Navy ship, which went up against the Bismarck, the German destroyer, the massive German destroyer, the the juggernaut of a ship. And a shell went into the bridge of the ship that Esmond Knight was on. He was on the bridge. It didn't fortunately explode, but metal splinters went into his eyes. One of his eyes was lost, and he was blind for two years in the other eye. His vision had only recovered after an operation. He recovered partial vision in his right eye in time to make this movie. He decided that blindness wasn't going to impact his career as an actor, and this is the first um, acting role he did after regaining partial sight in his right eye. So there's him with blindness caused by the Bismarck. There's Leslie Banks with the facial scarring from World War I. And of course there's Ian Carmichael with the top of his finger chopped off by a tank hatch. So it's really interesting for me, at least, and from a historical point of view, to see the way that two world wars impacted even actors there were so many people out there with injuries and mutilations caused by war a lot of whom went back to their previous careers in this case acting and produced incredibly good work after having lived through some incredibly horrible experiences and i find that 
amazing and admirable and totally um, life-affirming in a weird way. Well, I was actually reading about somebody else who was affected by the war, in fact, whose movie career was caused by the war, and that's Audie Murphy, who had post-traumatic stress disorder because of the um, his experiences in World War Two. If you look at the history of cinema, particularly American and European cinema, in the 40s, 50s and 60s, you'll see the scars and the marks of World War Two all across them. And this movie is right at the centre of that. It's at the point where they're about to jump across the pond and make a beachhead on the French coast in order to defeat the Germans. And Laurence Olivier gets to make this wonderful speech written 344 years before he spoke it but talking about circumstances that were very very contemporary to the audience of 1944 oh that we now had here but one ten thousand of those men in england that do not work today what's he that wishes so my cousin westmoreland no my fair cousin if we are marched to die we are enough to do our country loss and if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. Rather proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this feast, let him depart. His passport shall be drawn and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispin say. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son. And Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so base. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed they were not here and hold their manhoods cheap. Whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day! And the battle scenes in this film are pretty good too. There's a nice little bit of animation when all of the arrows arc over into the French army in a very pretty way. A scene which has been emulated in any number of subsequent films. The problem with this movie which is the problem I actually have to play in with any ad adaptation of it is that the post-battle scenes are the climax of the film and the rest of it is about signing a treaty and marrying his cousin, the Princess of France, basically, Princess Catherine. And um, that stuff is kind of dull compared to everything that comes before, so there's kind of a tapering off at the end of Henry V, which... For me, it's always a problem. It, maybe it's because I'm attuned to movies rather than plays, and I find all the kind of meat cute stuff where he and the princess get together to be okay. But everything exciting and everything really meaningful has occurred before that point. And that, of course, is the limitation, for me at least, of Henry V. Now... There were three adaptations of Shakespeare that Laurence Olivier filmed. There's this one in 1944. There is his Hamlet in 1948 and his Richard III in 1955. Interestingly enough, there are a number of actors that appear in all three because they are such good actors and good Shakespearean actors. 
which is not the same thing. But for me, one of the joys of this movie was the number of people who turned up in it, the number of actors I really liked who turned up in it. Uh, Robert Helpman turns up as a bishop. Um, Australian actor Robert Helpman. He played the child catcher in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, for those who don't know. And also a number of other roles. He's in Red Shoes, for instance, the Powell and Pressburger movie, The Red Shoes. Very fine dancer, very fine actor as well. Ernest Thessinger is in this movie, the guy who played Dr. Pretorius in The Bride of Frankenstein. He shows up as the Duke of Berry. Uh, Griffin, Griffith Jones is the old Salisbury. He was in a movie called Miranda I've talked about on a previous podcast. Frida Jackson, who later turned up in some Hammer Horror films, plays Mistress Quickly. George Cole, who played Flash Harry in the Centrinians movies and went on to do Minder plays the boy in this film. Um, Leo Jen's in it, Max Adrian, uh, I mentioned John Laurie, Niall McGuinness, Michael Shepley and Esmond Knight already. Jimmy Hanley, who went on to do a number of other roles in there. Valentine Dahl, who had the best darkly horrible voiceover voice in the world, um, shows up as well towards the end of the film and talks a little bit about the French vineyards in a very pointed way. Uh, by the way, Frida Jackson, the movie she turned up in, I'm just checking this out, was Brides of Dracula. She played the housekeeper in Brides of Dracula and played Mistress Quickly in this adaptation of Henry V. There are just so many good actors in this and all of them are pitch perfect on what they need to be for their particular roles. Some of them are the fools and, and the comic relief almost. Some of them have much more serious roles to play. Uh, it's a little bit of a sausage fest. Renee Asherton plays Princess Catherine, and she has some nice... Sin- Asherson, sorry. Renee Asherson. Um, and she has some nice scenes, and she is quite um, charming playing Princess Catherine. It's a very thankless role in a lot of ways, to be honest. But um, she appeared in a number of movies. She was um, Michael Horden's wife in Theatre of Blood, the Vincent Price movie in 1973, for instance. And um, let's see. She was married to Robert Donat, who we know as uh, from 1953 until his death in 1958. He was in, of course, 39 Steps and Goodbye, Mr. Chips. She was his wife. Uh, just and also one of the other things too about the actors in this, particularly people like Esmond Knight and Robert Helpman and um, of course Robert Newton, is they had fantastic faces there, faces along with all of the kind of fake moustaches and beards and things like that, but their faces are, are striking and larger than life in some way. Max Adrian playing the Dauphin is um, yeah, he's quite striking looking as well. They're, they're just it's just a beautiful film to watch from that point of view. If you're interested in human faces, this is really a fantastic movie from that point of view. And I love the costuming in it. Again, done with limitations based on the availability of textiles, for instance. It's quite clear that apart from the government um, support that the film received, it was a labour of love and it had deep and important meaning to the people who were making it. In the same way that um, Went the Day Well was a propaganda piece, but very entertaining. So too is Henry V. It really is a lovely piece of work. And for me, it's the second best Shakespearean adaptation I know. Probably after Forbidden Planet. No, actually the third. Forbidden Planet, Kiss Me Kate, then Henry V. It's probably the best pure adaptation of a Shakespeare work that I've seen so far. Because of that accessibility and because of the crucial point in history at which it was made. But anyway, that's about it for this time around. It's time to knock, knock, knock that naughty clock that says it's time to go. And um, I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd like to thank again the Patreon subscribers and everybody who comments on Facebook and all those other lovely people out there and just the people who offer support. Sometimes that's enough. Sometimes it's a lovely thing to have somebody say, I like what you did. So anyway, look after yourselves. Watch bad movies. Watch good movies. Watch a Shakespearean movie and watch one for me, will you? Because I've got to watch Love Actually. I'll be back next week with a Martian Driving podcast in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. Take care of yourselves. And as always, along with the two Careys, here are the credits to the podcast done in the style 
of movie credits and as a way of thanking and recognizing the patreon subscribers who support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleo cinema and chucking in a buck a month some more but a buck a month is a minimum take care of yourselves i'll be back soon Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers and here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, our casting director. Chris, our camera operator. Christopher, our gaffer. Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. Tansy, the foley artist. Alyssa, the location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, our donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve, our script doctor. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Kerry, our second script doctor. Richard, our set photographer. And our extras, Kathleen, Mark and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects. And Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers. And you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema.